Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a queer history podcast. I'm Alice. I'm Hamish. I'm Eli. On the 1st and 15th of each month, one of us will talk about a person, place or topic from queer history. Today we're talking about queer women in medieval Arab literature. Just a few content warnings for this episode. There's brief mentions of murder, a lot of explicit discussions of sex, and one swear word in a quotation. The historical context for this episode is that we're going to be talking about the Islamic Golden Age, which was a flourishing of art, culture, and learning in the Islamic world, so the Middle East, Spain, and North Africa, centred around Baghdad. The dating on this period, it's like trying to date the medieval period for Europe. It's pretty broad and vague. We're talking from about the 8th century through to the 14th century or even the 15th or 16th century depending on what scholar you're reading. Most of our sources for this episode will date from the early 10th century through until the 14th century. Before I start I will give us a bit of terminology that we're going to be using throughout the episode. I'd like to apologize in advance because I'm not an Arabic speaker. I'm going to say a lot of Arabic words in this episode and I can't promise I'm saying them correctly but I'm doing my best. So the word for lesbian in Arabic in the period, which I don't think is the word for lesbian anymore, was sahika. There's also sahaka and musahika. So when you say the word for lesbian, yes, what do you mean by that? The words sahika, sahaka, and musahika come from the root shq, so they all have those three consonants in them. That root is a verb which means to rub or to pound. Ah, so, so they're trivative. Yeah, yeah, so it's like Greek. Okay, so it's behavior, not identity, basically, is the situation, or? The etymology of the word is behavior, not identity. Later, we'll get into what they thought about lesbians in terms of who was a lesbian, mm -hmm. whether you were a lesbian for your entire life, or just sometimes slept with women. Okay. I also want to note that because that root means to rub or to pound, in the translations I was finding, lesbian is often translated as grinder. So that's going to come up a bunch. It's going to sound weird. I feel like there's probably a bunch of dirty jokes from the period about, you know, how you'd have women grinding grain for loaves? Yes, that's wow. another thing that is not grinding grain for loaves, but working saffron dye into clothes. Wow. So saffron's gay now. So saffron's gay now, and yellow clothing is also gay now. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. I saw a post on Tumblr literally last night where someone wearing, I think, a mustard jumper or a yellow skirt or something, I can't remember, was like, yellow's gay now, I don't make the rules. So to that one random Tumblr user, you were right! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining, you know, two women getting to the end of their evening and they're very satisfied sexually and also have some lovely yellow garments. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds immensely productive. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's the terminology we're going to be dealing with. The words for lesbianism, the one that I think we're going to come across most is Sihak. There's also Sak and Sihaka. So I don't, unfortunately, have examples of historic lesbian figures, which is why we're talking about literature. So the first thing I want to start with in this episode is the story of two women who are known in the Arab literary tradition as being the first lesbians. Ever? Ever, yeah. Wow. In the world. Sorry, Sappho. Yeah. Get wrecked, Sappho. Um, <laughs> Did you just say get wrecked? <laughs> Sorry. So this story comes from the earliest extant Arabic erotic text, which in English translation is called the Encyclopedia of Pleasure. I'm just going to include the disclaimer here. I'm not going to try and say the Arabic titles of any of these books because it will be a mess and no one will benefit from it. Now, I will put out notes then of the Arabic words that I've avoided saying. But in English, we're going to call this book the Encyclopedia of Pleasure. So 
It dates from the end of the 10th century. Mm-hmm. And it was written by a man named Abul Hassan Ali ibn Nasser al-Khatib, who lived in Baghdad. We're going to call him Ibn Nasser, for the record. One of the sections in this book is a collection of older sources from poets, philosophers, and physicians on the topic of erotic homosexual relationships between women and also between men. Unfortunately, I can't tell you the whole story because it's very hard to get hold of the original sources because I don't speak Arabic and also because of the socio-political climate in the Islamic world at the moment, a lot of them are censored. I am going to go into a little bit of detail about how hard it was to get hold of these, just so we understand how difficult a topic this could be to research if you're not a male Arabic speaker living in the Arab world. So my information on this comes from the academic Saha Amer, who is an Egyptian woman, and she's written articles and books about medieval lesbians in the Arab world. And she talks about trying to get hold of this book, and she found a bookshop in Cairo that stocked it, and she went in and tried to buy it, and they wouldn't sell it to her because they said, we're not selling that book to a nice Muslim woman like you, and she had to get a man to come in and buy it for her. When she did get hold of it, it's written, as the book is written, black text on a white background, and then she said on each page there's a big picture of a red tree covering the entire page. In an effort to hide it from censors, basically. Well, so nobody's going to glance at it and be like, oh, that's porn. They're going to glance at it and be like, that's a picture of a tree and I guess some words. Oh, okay. So. Huh. Well. Yeah. I mean, do you have like any of the pages that we could put a picture up of or anything? Because that sounds interesting and I can't quite picture it. I don't. She talks about this in one of her articles that she read and okay. she didn't include any images. No, fair enough. So I don't. Hmm. Yeah, I was a bit confused when she described this, but. It at least made it clear that even once you've got the book, it's very hard to read the book. Mm. Yeah. Yep. The English translation, through which this book is most well known, was published as part of someone's PhD dissertation in the 70s, and it was published by Aleppo Press. And to quote Saha Amir, Aleppo Publishing has since gone out of business. None of the translators can be found in any scholarly listings or directories. No information is given on the university where the dissertation was submitted and defended. The book is utterly unavailable for purchase anywhere, and it can only be consulted through two known copies. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. This is some conspiracy <laughs> level stuff. <laughs> so that's what we're dealing with here. Where are the two known copies? Uh, one's in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., uh-huh. and the other's in the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Wow. So they're not readily available Ooh. to us as Australians. Or to, you know. Anyone. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, I don't know where she is based, but. As an Egyptian woman. She's now based in Sydney, I think. Oh, okay. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) You're so close to us. Yeah. Okay, so that was our little interlude on how hard it is to get hold of anything in this particular area of research. So unfortunately, everything I'm getting, I have to get from secondary sources, basically. Yeah. Primary sources. Always pick telephones, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that aside, in the Encyclopedia of Pleasure, we find the story of two women who are the first lesbians. Their names are Hindbint al-Numan, who we call Hind, and Hindbint al-Khus al-Iadea, who we call al-Zaka. Okay. So, Do you know how the names are working? So, Hind is the first name. Yep. And they both have the same first name, Hind. Okay. It's again all over again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bint means daughter of, so Hindbint al-Numan is Hind, the daughter of al-Numan. It's just like but. Yeah. Yeah. And then Hinbint al-Kus al-Iadir is the daughter of Kus al-Iadir. Okay. And al-Zaka, I think, means blue. Okay. I'm not sure why that's her name, but that's what we call her. Cool. So were surnames not a thing here? 
at this time. No, these women don't yeah. have surnames. They okay. just have daughter of whoever. Yeah. Patronymics work like surnames in a lot of contexts. Yeah. I'm Jewish, dude. I know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the story is set in the 7th century. Mm-hmm. So that's when the first lesbians happened, guys. This is C. This is C. Sorry, this is C. Hind is a Christian, and she's the daughter, or in some sources that also tell the story, the wife of the king of Hira, which is in modern-day Iraq. And Alzaka is an Arab woman from Yamama, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia. I don't have the whole story to hand from the Encyclopedia of Pleasure, as we discussed, but another 9th century source tells us how the two women met and fell in love. And it says, Alzaka did not cease to deceive Hint and to extol grinding for her and to say, in the union of two women, there is a pleasure that cannot be between the woman and the man. To safeguard herself from scandal and knowing that her appetite could be satisfied without accusation or fear of punishment, they had intercourse. Hind found a pleasure that was even greater than the other had described and their amorous desire for each other increased. And it had never been so between women before this. So do they just invent lesbian sex? Yeah, I didn't think that was interesting because, like, I feel like they just invented lesbian sex. But it also starts with Elzaka obviously, like, knowing what this is and being like, Hind, this would be great. Let's do this. Mm, okay. So, unclear, but, like, mm. yes, they just invented lesbian sex. And then we're presumably like, holy crumbs, we have to tell people about this. <laughs> yeah, it says it was a pleasure that could not be between a woman and a man. So they were like, yeah, this is way better than with our husbands. So yeah, that's what happened there. Okay, a few points I did want to make on that quote before we continue. It talks about how Hind was willing to engage in lesbian sex to safeguard herself from scandal and knowing that her appetite could be satisfied without accusation or fear of punishment. What that's talking about there is basically that she couldn't accidentally get pregnant sleeping with Elzaka. So it's much safer and less likely to bring any shame on her or her family than if she'd had sex with another man. Solid. Which makes sense. The second thing is that this text and most of the texts we'll see don't erase female desire or lessen it in any way compared to female-male relationships. And it does explicitly say it was better than the pleasure that could be had between a woman and a man. Whereas in Western texts, of, I was going to say of the time, but no one's writing about lesbian sex at the time. <laughs> Even now, like people talk about lesbian sex and like, yeah, okay, but we don't really know how that works or what they can do, whereas if you're looking in this text, they're very explicitly like, no, they had sex, and it was really, really good. So that was interesting, and I enjoyed that. Before we go on to discuss this anymore, I'm going to read you the end of the story as it's found in the Encyclopedia of Pleasure. So the author writes, Hind was so loyal to Azaka that when the latter died, she cropped her hair, wore black clothes, rejected worldly pleasures, vowed to God that she would lead an ascetic life until she passed away, and as a result, she built a monastery which was named after her, so after Azaka on the outskirts of Kufa. When Hind died, she was buried at the monastery gate. Her loyalty was then an example for poets to write about. So the story is largely unverifiable and basically a fictional story. But it is worth noting that although it's not confirmed, other sources also do talk about a Hind, who is the daughter of a king in this location, and mention her building a monastery. Hmm. So, like, there could be some historical basis for this. That's mm. interesting. Yes. And they also mention her refusing marriage proposals. Mm. Not because she's not interested in the specific men, but just saying, no, I don't want to get married. That's not for me. Nobody appears to have done any work on connecting any of those sources or any historical texts together to work out if there's any basis to this story. But, yeah, overall, as I was saying, in a time when lesbianism was just absolutely not talked about in the Western Christian world, the Arab world was having a much more open conversation about it and not pretending it didn't exist and not pretending it was a lesser thing than female-male attraction. Is this like a standard treatment 
for the time? Because we know that the text is really hard to get hold of now. Mm-hmm. Was it considered to be taboo erotica or taboo eroticism at the time, or was it widely circulated? It was much more widely circulated at the time than it is now. Mm-hmm. It was quite common at the time to circulate these quite erotic texts. It was an accepted part of like sophisticated literature, and it was pretty fine to openly discuss sex. Sweet. Including same sex, both lesbian and male-male sex. Nice. So yeah, things have gone downhill in that regard. We're going to talk about why. I don't think I'm qualified. Yeah, I don't think I'm qualified. And it's outside of the period I'm discussing, so probably not. I do want to say, though, that I'm not going to try and claim that this was a queer utopia and that there was no homophobia in this period. The story that directly follows the story of Hinton al-Zaka in one of the sources is the story of two women called Rugum and Najda who are in a relationship. Rugum's brother is ridiculed because his sister is in a relationship with a woman, and so he murders his sister's partner. Okay. It does end, however, with Rugum inciting her partner's family to war to seek vengeance for her partner's death. And al who's the author, writes, This serves as an indication of the greatness of the pleasure they find in grinding, as well as an indication of their preference for grinding over the pleasure with men. Huh. So even though he is telling us a story which is obviously demonstrating homophobia, he does bring it back to validating their relationship. Mm-hmm. Because she went all thousand ships on him. <laughs> launched, launched a war to get justice for her beloved. Yes, she did. I don't know how that war went, unfortunately. I don't have the end of that story here. Yeah, so while people obviously depict it as being uncomfortable with lesbianism or outright violent towards lesbians, it doesn't seem overall to be seen as intrinsically or morally wrong or as something which can't be talked about. So on that topic, I like to talk about what the religious attitudes were of the time and some of the reasons why lesbianism might have been seen as more accepted. So in medieval Islamic discourse, sexuality was much more celebrated than it was in Christian discourse of the time, and sex was not seen as being a sin, which... Honestly, when I read this, I was like, oh, sex wasn't a sin. And then I was like, that shouldn't be a pleasant surprise. I shouldn't be like, wow, that's weird. (laughs) And yet. It's not in Judaism either. This is such a Christian thing. Yeah, and that's eminently reasonable. (laughs) screwed up somewhere. So yeah, it was a pleasant surprise that sex isn't seen as a sin and not seen as something that harms your religious piety. You might remember that when we talked about Puritans a few episodes back, even having sex with your spouse was taking your eyes away from God for a while and kind of like, I guess you had to do it, but not great. (laughs) So not that, which is fun. The Quran itself is quite vague on what the punishments for male-male homosexuality are and also on whether it condemns female homosexuality at all Hmm. or whether that's just fine. Various schools of legal thought at the time in various different locations have prescribed many different punishments for homosexuality, and that depends on the genders of the people involved, their marital status, whether they're the active or the passive partner, all those things. But overall, the situation is that what's called liwat, which is male-male anal sex, was seen as a crime deserving of punishment, and kissing intercrural sex between men and sock, which is lesbianism, were maybe frowned upon, but generally less serious. So like socks with sandals. <laughs> Shall we just make a note that intercrural sex is sex where the penis is put between the thighs and they enjoy friction? I don't know. People tend to not know what this is. Okay, and okay. Reasonable. Yeah. I've done too much classics. Yeah, me too. I've done too much classics. <laughs> <laughs> so... Lesbianism is often not mentioned in legal compendia at all, and sometimes when it is, it's prescribed no punishment, or sometimes just a less severe punishment. I will note that when I say less severe, there is at least one source which prescribes up to 100 lashes for 
lesbian sex. So less severe is not necessarily fine, but 100 mm. lashes was the worst punishment that I came across, and there were some that didn't offer anything. Comparing this to potentially being stoned to death for, say, adultery. How is a human doing after 100 lashes? I don't know. Because I know... Quite yeah. Oh, great. Because I know that in some places, I don't know what places I'm thinking of, not like this context, just places where people have been whipped. Yeah. Um, where places. Yeah, which is most places. You know, people get prescribed, like, an amount of lashes, mm-hmm. and that's kind of just code for kill them because they can't survive that amount of lashes. And, like, it's not that. I'm just saying, like, how's a human doing after 100 lashes? Not great. I don't know if that would kill a person or not. Hmm. Maybe it would. Maybe I've underestimated how harsh this particular theologian was to lesbianism. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on with what also. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. The sex act that Islam at the time did most strongly condemn is zina, which is basically adultery, specifically penetrative sex between a man and a woman who is not his wife or his concubine. You specified before male-male anal sex. Did they have feelings about anal sex between a man and a woman that you were aware of that were like different? I, I don't know. Okay, fair enough. So Xena, basically, it's sex with the risk of pregnancy. So because of the cultural emphasis on female virginity and the scandal of unwanted pregnancy – both of which would affect the reputation not only of a woman but of her entire family or her male relatives. Lesbianism was seen as being a very viable alternative to adultery. There's no risk of pregnancy, and so if it is found out that two women are in a lesbian relationship, it's much, much less of a scandal. Hmm. Even if they're both married to men? Even if they're both married to men, yeah. Okay. Is that still seen as bad because they're married? And just like less, or is that... It depends on where you are okay, yeah, cool. and a whole lot of things. That's reasonable. Yeah. So as well as religious attitudes, mm-hmm. I also want to talk about the medical or semi-scientific attitudes of the time where they oh. tried to explain what caused lesbianism, whether it was innate or whether there was something that led to it, whether it's just an activity that people might enjoy or an identity <laughs> people might enjoy. <laughs> People hopefully will enjoy. Al-Yameni, who's one of the sources I mentioned for that story of Hint and Al-Zaka, in the 9th century, outlines two kinds of grinders, as he says. Sorry. You have to get used to them. I'm going to say this word a bunch. Um, <laughs> you can't laugh every time. We, we haven't been. But it's funny. How did Grinder end up being called Grinder? You know, like it's in the gay Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they took as many letters as they could from Tinder. Oh, no, right, yeah, no, Tinder. no, no, Grinder came first. What? Did Tinder steal from Grindr? Yeah, Tinder stole from Grindr. Grindr really? came first. Like grinding on a dance floor, maybe? I guess. That yeah. One. Yeah, grinding on someone. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just kind of assumed it. that was the origin yeah. of that. I mean, my ultimate point is that lesbians deserve this app name more. They do. Yes, yeah, so there are two kinds of grinders, according to Elia Mini. There are ones who, quote, love grinding but do not hate the penis. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Translations are weird. The definite article. Yeah. I I am strongly in support of naturalistic translations, but this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I need to get a, like, bisexual slogan put up. Love's grinding, but do not hate the penis. (laughs) It's like the platonic ideal of the penis. (laughs) Like there's one, there's one that is kept in Baghdad under a glass case against all, which all others are measured. This first type of lesbian that he talks about, he's basically saying they have found a woman that they're sexually compatible with, and that's why they're sleeping with her. But that doesn't mean they couldn't find a man. So in modern terms, they're bisexual, basically. Hmm. Unfortunately, he does talk about. I'll just read you the quote actually to illustrate this. 
This woman can be rescued from doubt as to what is just and extracted from mood to truth by a skilled man who is rich in ways of intercourse and can offer her various forms of fucking until she finds one she prefers and which agrees with her appetite and who then administers it to her. So that's not gone away. (laughs) (laughs) No, it hasn't gone away. But yeah, no, that is one of the few examples of that that I did find, though. Okay. That didn't seem to be a particularly prevalent attitude. But as now, it is an attitude that exists that a lesbian just needs a man to teach her how good sex works. I suppose we don't really have a representative survey of the literature. No, we don't. So I suppose we can't really speak to the commonality of of certain views. Yeah, that's very true. So this view existed. I don't know how common it was. It wasn't the view, but it definitely existed. The second kind of lesbian that Aliamani talks about is a lesbian from an early age. She's described as being masculine. And he says, she competes with men and resembles them and scorns submitting to them. So he's basically offered us an example of bisexual women and an example of women who are with women throughout their life. And Uh he sees them as taking on the role of men. Who are butch lesbians. And as we know, the only type of lesbians. Well, luckily, Aliomeni knows there's the second type of lesbian, the one who just needs a man. Another source from around the same time draws comparisons between human sexuality and the sexualities of animals. He talks about chickens and pigeons. Is there observed gay behavior between pigeons according to Muthana bin Zuhair yes I'm definitely googling gay pigeons after this he says I've never seen anything in man and woman that I haven't seen in the male and female pigeon (laughs) I've seen a pigeon who did not want anyone besides her male mate in the same way that a woman wants no one beside her husband and master I have seen a pigeon who does not forbid any male as I have seen a woman who does not deter the touching hand I have seen female pigeons who do not show their depravity until after much rejection and a great deal of insistence. I have seen it show depravity to the first male who chooses her, and I have seen women of that sort too. I have seen a pigeon who has a mate while she allows another male access. I have seen this in women too. I have seen one flirt with a male other than her mate whilst her mate was watching, and I have seen one who won't do this unless her husband flies or flops his wings. I've seen a female pigeon who mounts male pigeons, and one who mounts other female pigeons. I've seen pigeons who mount nothing beside other female pigeons, and I've seen one who mounts female ones but does not allow them to mount her. I've seen a male who mounts one who then mounts him in return. I've seen a female pigeon who feigns masculinity and who does not allow another to mount her. I've seen all these kinds in grinders, feminine and masculine ones, and also among men who are sodomites. There's more coming, (laughs) and I'm not done. (laughs) Among men... There are those who do not want women, and amongst women, those who do not want men. By God, I have seen a male pigeon who would mount whatever he finds his way without ever marrying. Does he imply that pigeon marriage exists? There are just some pigeons who don't, like, choose to do it? I think so. I've seen a female pigeon who gave access to anyone wanting her, male or female. Dot, dot, dot. So, like, it's unclear whether it ends here. There may be more. He's so comprehensive. (laughs) Has spent more time observing pigeons than anyone ever needed to do. Yes. (laughs) What has happened? Do you think that he is giving a hypothetical or he truly has stalked pigeons? I definitely wouldn't believe that he owned a columbarium. And oh, like, yeah, true. had a crummy relationship with his brother and spent some time out there. Yeah. Like, chilling with the pigeons. It didn't occur to me that he might just own pigeons as opposed to just kind of going to the square every day and being like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what pigeon depravity can I observe this day? <laughs> but the moral of the story is that mm. pigeons do all these things and so do people. And it's portrayed as natural, like it happens in the world mm-hmm. among many species. Other medical texts talk about lesbianism as being 
very much based around like a specific physical and very clinical sounding need. I don't know how to explain this, so I'm just going to read you the quote. Ninth century philosopher Alkindi writes, Lesbianism is due to a vapour which, condensed, generates in the labia heat and an itch which only dissolve and become cold through friction and orgasm. Can you buy this vapour? <laughs> Unclear. I'm going to finish the quote and then we can discuss. <laughs> when friction and orgasm take place, the heat turns into coldness because the liquid that a woman ejaculates in lesbian intercourse is cold, whereas the same liquid that results from union with men is hot. No. <laughs> from his extensive knowledge of lesbian sex. Yeah, this is what he's discovered. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if that happened? See, like, can you just imagine two women having an orgasm and then being like, oh god, oh god, freezing. <laughs> Or some kind of like, I'm sorry, I was about to make the worst comment. Some kind of like licking a pole in winter situation. <laughs> I can definitely see how this happened, where like he's a man of science, and so he's like sitting there in a chair in the corner of the room, and then once they're done, he's like, no, wait, stop there, I have to get the thermometer. And then he rushes out, and by the time he gets back, they're both freezing. <laughs> wow, well, okay. I have no idea what the basis of this claim is, like where he pulled this from, but I suppose you could probably find context for it in like medical theories at the time. Of, mm. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Sorry to continuously bring this back to a Western context, but I'm thinking about like ancient Greek nonsense about the humors and things like that. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that too. Mm. He is not the only person that has this explanation for the record. That was just one example of that, but it comes up. It's a thing people thought at the time. Okay. Other texts talk about women being born as lesbians. Mm because of what their mother ate during breastfeeding. Okay. So not born as lesbians. Being lesbians from a very young age. Okay. Forged in infancy. Yeah, based on what their mother ate during breastfeeding. So and Because their mother ate lesbians during breastfeeding? No, for the record. She accidentally ate the vapour. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely the sort of thing that uh, you would find in a questionable shop in Byron Bay. <laughs> Lesbian vapor. Yes. As opposed to the non-questionable shops in my <laughs> There are three. One of them sells apples. <laughs> Just apples. No other fruit. For the record, the foods which you do eat during breastfeeding to make your child a lesbian are celery, rocket. <gasps> Wait, do you mean celery celery or do you mean sex celery? It just said celery and I don't speak okay. Arabic, so I can't I tell suppose you. if it's the ninth century, sex celery is already extinct. Yeah, sex celery oh. is extinct from the time of, like, Nero. Yeah. You have to explain sex celery. Okay. Now, that's not common knowledge. Sex celery is my favourite vegetable ever because I think it's the only vegetable that humanity has sexed out of existence. It's related to celery. Uh, it's related to fennel also. Yeah. And it has these lovely heart-shaped seeds that you see on coins that people theorise is the origin of that love heart shape. But it was a really, really effective oral contraceptive that people would take and also buy in enormous numbers, but it was impossible to grow anywhere except this one spot in the north of Africa. And then we just harvested it to extinction so that we could have a bunch of sex, and then the last stalk sold for its weight in silver to Emperor Nero. Also, uh, as soon as you said celery, I was instantly... Like, that's why Sappho has that one fragment that literally just says (laughs) celery. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, maybe this is why. So good. I am so desperate and sad in my thesis. Save me. (laughs) (laughs) And the last two things are melolot leaves. I don't know what melolot is. And the flowers of the bitter orange tree. I'd go with celery. I'd take rocket, I think. Mm. Okay, what would you take? I mean, I really like celery. Let's take it. (laughs) You can't both eat celery while you're breastfeeding. (laughs) I haven't eaten celery right now. 
So just before we move on from the explanations of lesbianism, other reasons are they just couldn't find a man with whom they had a compatible sexual appetite, a dislike of scratchy beards, (laughs) (laughs) women not being suited to being the passive partner during sex, which they would be with a man, and who want to be in charge of what sex they have and when they have sex, which apparently they can't be in charge of with a man. So as you've definitely noticed and we've mentioned, something that comes up often is that they're not afraid to explicitly talk about sex and explicitly talk about lesbianism. So I wanted to talk a bit about the cultural context of that and why we have all these sex manuals and books Mm. on how to have sex. These sources that talk quite explicitly about sex are often from a literary genre called Kutabalbar, which are sex manuals. And this genre is part of the tradition of Zarf, which translates as something like courtly sophistication. Okay. So it includes literature, poetry, art, all these kinds of things. It originated in Medina in modern-day Saudi Arabia and spread to Baghdad in about the 8th to 10th centuries, so around the time these texts are being written. So part of the idea of being sophisticated as part of this tradition of Zaf was of examining love and sex with this kind of semi-scientific view, Hmm. trying to explain, for example, why people are lesbians, also explaining in detail how people have sex. It's sort of scientific, but definitely also they're also erotic texts. Hmm. And so this included circulating these erotic texts and treatises on sex, on how to have better sex. And Zaf was also characterized by a prominent role played by women of many classes. So the upper classes, the rising middle class, and also their slave women hmm. often themselves wrote poetry and That's interesting. were involved in this. I would have really liked to find more on this, but like the main source was in German. Hmm. I was sad. Yeah, so there are women who ran salons, who read and wrote literature. There are some poems we have from this era that were written by women. Unfortunately, no lesbian ones. And this is definitely associated with lesbianism, these female salons, to the point where the word mutazarafat, which means courtly lady, so that's from the same root as zarf, it's got the Z-I-F in it, also means lesbian. Hmm. So that's where these texts are coming from. Interesting. I do also want to note that in most of these erotic texts, although I've talked quite positively about how there's a lot of talk about lesbianism and women can play a prominent role, most of them do focus around men. Lesbianism is usually, as we find in queer texts today, just one chapter, where they're like, also women do this. And I didn't, although there are a few poems written by women that I came across, I didn't find any of these long treatises on sex written by women. Hmm. All these sources are written by men. In spite of the fact that they're all written by men, these texts do have chapters on lesbianism, Lesbians are often associated with love and devotion, portrayed Mm. quite positively. And these texts also talk about them having their own communities, their own subculture. They have groups and meetings and schools on how to have lesbian sex. Oh, my God. (laughs) Just everything about that was excellent. Just quickly, though, you're saying they were associated with love and devotion. Is that, like, more so than relationships between two men or between a man and a woman or i don't know about relationships between two men to be honest Mm -hmm. but i think to some extent yes compared to relationships between a man and woman so when i talked before the story of hind and alzaka that we opened with Mm -hmm. there are several poets who have written about them and we get quotes like we have an unattributed quote from the man who wrote the encyclopedia of pleasure so it's in that source but he doesn't say who the poet is that he's quoting Mm which says, O Hind, you are truer to your word than men, O the difference between your loyalty and theirs. Okay. So they are compared positively to opposite sex relationships, at least in that instance. Okay. 
So yes, lesbian schools. So I want to read a quote from one of these texts that's an example of this kind of depiction of lesbianism. This quote comes from a book called In Translation, and the translations are always really awkwardly worded. <laughs> Something like, the delight of hearts, or what one cannot find in any book. That seems almost self-defeating as a title. Yeah, it does. <laughs> That's what it's called. Anyway, it's written by a 13th century Tunisian physician, philosopher, and poet called Al-Tafashi. So this book is an anthology of erotic texts, including sections on lesbianism, and he writes about a lesbian community headed by a teacher named Rose. I assume that's a translation of her name. This didn't occur to me until this moment that, like, her name definitely wasn't just Rose. Anyway. And he provides examples of the teachings in these schools and communities. He includes one quote on the appropriate sounds to make during lesbian sex. <laughs> you know how you have to take ages to learn duck calls to be an effective duck hunter? Mm. I never knew this. Like, getting one of those, like, swazzles. Or like a, a punch and duty thing where you have to like put the thing in. So there's some like device you have to put in your mouth to yep. make effective lesbian sex calls. Yes. <laughs> and right. it's basically a kazoo. Yeah. <laughs> what he does say is you should snort heartily while wiggling lasciviously. I see. I wonder if that is a change in norms of sex sounds or if that's a <laughs> crummy translation for the word snort. Well, this is one of the texts that did exist in multiple translations. Okay. And the other translation I saw was not markedly different. I haven't got it in front okay. of me, unfortunately. Okay. But it's not, like, a grunt, maybe? Yeah, grunt is probably better than snort. <laughs> but, like, we assume, based on what we think is normal. Yes, quite so. Yeah, and it may not be that that is still normal. Oh, man, my desire to take a time travel sex holiday just went down. <laughs> I mean, this is lesbian sex. I don't know what men were supposed to do. No, good sex. point. You can um, fill a hole in the literature. I'm sorry for that phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> so following the instructions on what sounds you should make during sex, he gives very specific instructions on sex positions, etc. I have a long quote. I'm just going to read it all to you. This is the quote I mentioned before, which also talked about saffron. So these are his instructions on how women should have sex with each other. The tradition between women in the game of love necessitates that the lover places herself above and the beloved underneath, unless the former is too light or the second too developed. And in this case, the lighter one places herself underneath and the heavier one on top, because her weight will facilitate the rubbing and will allow the friction to be more effective. Oh, okay. Yeah, which wasn't what I expected. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like, do not squish. Yeah, I thought it would be that way around, but no, better friction. Squish. <laughs> yeah. He definitely makes it sound super codified. Like, I was expecting him to say, in the game of love, it is traditional for the white pieces to move first. <laughs> that is true, yeah. And I think that's probably part of this Zaf tradition, is, like, sophistication and codifying of hmm. things like sex. I'm imagining someone, like, has the manual open next to their bed and is like, hang on, wait, I don't know this rule. Wait, which of us is lighter? Okay, right, you go on top. <laughs> Yep, this is how they act. The one that must stay underneath lies on her back, stretches out one leg, and bends the other while leaning slightly to the side. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was doing violence when you laughed. <laughs> Therefore offering her opening wide open. Meanwhile, the other lodges her bent leg in her groin, puts the lips of her vagina between the lips that are offered her, and begins to rub the vagina of her companion in an up and down and down and up movement. <laughs> <laughs> These two separate movements. <laughs> it's just so exact. So, like, can you imagine someone being like, well, your leg's not bent at a 90 degree angle, so I was looking forward to having sex with you, but now I'm just going to get my coat. <laughs> or someone's stripping off of me like, god damn it, I forgot my protractor. 
The operation is dubbed the saffron massage because this is precisely how one grinds saffron on the cloth when dyeing it. Precisely. Precisely. How what? With, okay. I'm not sure how similar this is to when you grind saffron into cloth. Mm. It has both up and down and down and up motions. Is that like that's the only thing I can see that would be? I mean, yeah. or you literally grind it into the cloth with your vagina, <laughs> or maybe just your legs. Anyway, I really don't I just know. imagine someone being like, "Hey, what if instead of using our vaginas, we used our hands, and then saffron production just went <laughs> way off?" I feel like saffron cloth production would plummet. That's what I thought yeah. was going to happen too. <laughs> All right. Sure. <laughs> And then something happened to the rate of saffron production. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it gets more specific. The operation must focus each time on one lip in particular, the right one, for example, and then the other. The woman will then slightly change position in order to apply better friction to the left lip, and she does not stop acting in this manner until her desires and those of her partner are fulfilled. So, okay. There's a lot of lip focus here. Bad name. I assure you that it is absolutely useless to try to press the two lips together at the same time, because the area from which pleasure comes would then not be exposed. Finally, let us note that in this game, the two partners may be aided by a little willow oil scented with musk. (laughs) That's the first sensible thing he said. Yeah, so... So, he doesn't really know about the clitoris, seems... No. I mean... Not explicitly. Is he avoiding mentioning the clitoris as the area from which pleasure comes being exposed? There was another text which I found which did mention the clitoris. Okay. But if you press the labia together... um, Oh, actually, I guess he's thinking of the... Yeah. Jaw rather than... I mean, I assume so. All right, yeah, all right, I'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there are other sources from this time talking about how women have sex that do talk explicitly about the clitoris, not in a very informed way, but okay. they know that it exists. For some reason I went to it's projectile laser beam powers. <laughs> Hamish, I your would... sex ed class in high school was not good enough. <laughs> yeah, so that gives us a good example of how explicit this gets. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing that we should have in with the content warnings mm-hmm. is that this podcast contains some questionable medieval sex advice, mm-hmm. which should be applied only at the viewer's discretion. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, let us know your findings. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Someone just sent us a picture of, like, a yellow gown. <laughs> Success! <laughs> so, I... I'm going to end this podcast with another story of mm-hmm. two lesbians. Excellent. Another fictional story, unfortunately. Once again, an example of explicit descriptions of lesbian sex. And this one comes from A Thousand and One Nights. Oh. Which I was excited by. I had no yes. idea there was explicit lesbian sex in A Thousand and One Nights. There is everything in A Thousand and One Nights. <laughs> so even though we've all obviously heard of A Thousand and One Nights, I do want to hear a little bit of background on what it actually is. It is a collection of folk stories, not A Thousand and One, because some stories cover several nights. I was assumed there were A Thousand and One stories. Same. There is no one definitive A Thousand and One Nights. There's various permutations from various places and various times, mm-hmm. which have some crossover in stories and some stories that are unique to different versions. The earliest texts are from around the 9th century, and the stories come from all around this region of the Middle East and North Africa and also parts of Europe. And very wildly in their levels of coherence. <laughs> yes. Is this where Aladdin comes from? Yes. Okay. Because I definitely heard that like in childhood 
editions of Aladdin stories, but also that just could have been a lie. Yeah, so this story begins on the 170th night, coming from the first critical edition of the work, which was published in 1984 and was based on a 14th or 15th century Syrian manuscript. Okay. This is the story. Kamar al-Zaman, who is a prince, the son of King Shahriman, is incredibly handsome, but he's also unwilling to get married. And eventually he's locked up in prison by his father, basically. Like, he's staying here till you get back together and agree to get married. Okay. Princess Budu, the daughter of King Gayu, is in the same situation. She's incredibly attractive, she won't get married, and she's locked up in prison. Oh no, how will this be resolved? <laughs> They're in two different prisons, for the record. But um, through the intervention of two jinn who have a bet on these two people falling in love and which will fall in love more. So, as with about 60% of sex, with the intervention of some jinn. <laughs> with the intervention of some jinn, they eventually get together. I've got together with people because of the intervention of some jinn. <laughs> Alcohol pun there for you. <laughs> And they get married. They're later separated when Budu is sleeping. Kamar finds a ring that's tied to a string that's on her clothing, one of the fastenings on her clothing. He takes the ring outside to examine it. It gets stolen by a bird. He chases the bird. And he just he's just gone. For real? No, he's coming back. Okay. <laughs> gone for, like, quite a time. Like, there's a lot of the plot is that he's gone now. Is it a pigeon? No, it's a kite. Okay. <laughs> There is another story which I am not talking about here because it's French. It's from the same time period and there was obviously interaction between the two, which is why I'm bringing it up. It's not totally off topic, which is also about lesbians and also includes a kite coming in and kind of facilitating the original lesbian relationship. So apparently it's a thing. Anyway, so while they're separated... Budu has to go and find Kamar again. So for safety, while she travels around trying to find him, she dresses as a man, mm-hmm. and the male name she uses is his name. Okay. Just to make this confusing, she is now called Kamar. So she goes around being like, have you heard of Kamar, who also is me? <laughs> yes, have you heard of me? So she eventually arrives at a place called the Isle of Ebony. Unclear if that's a real or fictional place. I'm assuming fictional. The king there is very old, and when he meets this Kamar, he recognises... I don't know what pronoun he is. Them. Them. He recognises them as being of royal descent, so he marries them to his daughter and abdicates so that Kamar or Budu can become king. Man, this was a sweet outcome. Yeah, mm. this worked out pretty well for yeah. him. No longer really need Kamar back. <laughs> yes, so the daughter's name is Hayat al-Nafus. I have a quote here from the section of the text about Budu and Hayat's wedding night. The servants made Hayat al-Nafus enter into the room where Budu, daughter of King Guyu, was, and they closed the door on them. They lit the candles and lights for them and spread the bed with silk. Budu entered into Hayat on the Fus. So that's... Yes. Sex, yes. Good job, Alice. Yes, I understand how this works. And later on, it describes a lot of hugging and caressing and kissing and talks about their relationship quite a lot and quite explicitly. On the third night of their marriage, Budu tells the truth to Hayat. Was not previously apparent. So she's entered this other woman. Yes. So what are we meant to be understanding about the anatomy present now? Unclear. Okay. I mean, I'm sure that the same person who successfully managed to convince a king that they should give over their kingdom to them can swindle an unmarried virgin into thinking that this is this is just how you do it, guys. This is this is how you do the sex. Yeah. This is completely normal. Because later on, they decide they have to fake her losing her virginity, and they use the blood of a pigeon. Sorry, chicken. <laughs> I think. Yes. <laughs> to stain the bed sheets. So on the third night of their marriage, Budu tells Hayat the truth, that she is in fact a woman, and the whole story about how she's looking for her missing husband. The quote reads, 
Buddha spoke to Hyatt in a soft feminine voice, and this was her true natural voice, and she unveiled the truth about her situation. She told her what had happened to her, and her beloved husband, Kamar Azaman, and she showed her vulva and said to her, I am a woman who has vulva and breasts. Hyatt is described as being pleased at the news. Cool. Well, that worked out. Yeah. This is all just worked out. It does. Extremely well. Yeah, it does. It just kind of works out. Yeah. So she's pleased, and the description of the interactions from here forward, both their conversational and their sexual interactions begin to use reflexive verbs. So I don't speak Arabic, but from what I understand, this difference comes across as rather than being Buddha kissed Hayat, being they kissed. Okay. So it's portrayed as being much more equal, not being an active and a passive partner, but being two equal partners. Sweet. So they continue to have sex, and they also have open conversations about this situation, the fact that there's a man involved who's not currently here. Hmm. Eventually, Kamar turns up. Buddha admits this whole story publicly. She abdicates. Kamar becomes king in her place, and he also marries Hayat. Kamar gets a sweet deal out of this. Yes. (laughs) I've been chasing this, but I'm a king. (laughs) (laughs) he definitely didn't put in any of the effort here (laughs) no he just ran off after some bird and then he came back and his wife was like so i found this hot girl and this kingdom and i can't do a thumbs up we're on a podcast (laughs) see that incredibly amusing thumbs up (laughs) and this kind of like not bad expression (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how to end that sentence without me to do a thumbs up I think we've ended it now. <laughs> I think it's clear. Yes, so he marries Hayat. Mm-hmm. So he's now married to both Hayat and Budu, which is fine and normal at the time. Mm. Interestingly, when Hayat's father asks Kamar to marry Hayat, now that he knows that Kamar is in fact the man of royal descent that he wants to rule his kingdom. I mean, sort of also the person she's already married, given that <laughs> yes. someone showed up and was like, yes, I am Kamar. True, yes. It's like, oh, look, just, let's just put it back how it was, kind of. <laughs> I'm too old for this nonsense. Yeah. So when Hayat's father asks the true Kamar to marry Hayat, it's Budu who answers. Yeah. And the text says, So Budu replied, By God, for me like for her, a night for me and a night for her, which is the standard practice in this polygamous marriages at the time, a night with one wife and a night with the other wife. And then she says, And I will live together with her in one house because I have gotten used to her, which was not the common practice at the time. Hmm. The two wives would live separately. But Budu is like, no, I want to live with her. We've had some good times together. Nice. So this comes out weirdly sounding like just a fine triad. Yeah, because presumably the... Oh, no, I suppose Budu didn't bring her kingdom with her. No, I assume not. Okay. Because it would have been interesting to have like a kingdom-wide triad. Yeah, three kingdoms just like in a solid alliance because yeah. the three parties are married. Oh, yeah, sweet. And that's a positive outcome. A very like good portrayal of lesbian sex and hmm. how it leads to ruling kingdoms. Well done, you three. <laughs> if only England historically had had a lesbian queen and also France and Spain instead of those three <laughs> countries constantly. Yes. So, yes, these two stories I've told you, so the one about Hind and Alzaka and the one about Budu and Hayat, are just two of many examples of same-sex female relationships and cross-dressing in Arab folk tales. Hmm. These I chose because they were the most explicitly lesbian ones. There are others which, you know, say things like, oh, you know, she wasn't interested in men, she was interested in women, but we don't really see a big description of a lesbian relationship. It will just say, and this was her partner. Hmm. Things like that. That's why I chose these ones. I really hoped when I was researching that I would find a historic queer woman that I could talk about, but I could only find these fictional women. I did find one woman called Walada bint al-Mustakfi, who has been described as the Muslim Sappho. So she's poorly understood and frequently misquoted? (laughs) Yeah, that's why I didn't talk about her. Uh, (laughs) When I was talking about Zaf, she's one of the most well-known 
poets of that tradition. Mm. And she's sort of said to be the person who exemplifies that. The only poems of hers we have that survive are about men. But I kept finding references to the fact that she had written poems about women. Mm. Okay. okay. And they all led back to this, this one source in German and the rest of the sources in Arabic. So I never worked out if these poems really existed. That was my closest to a real lesbian historic figure I could find. And that's why I couldn't talk about her. So instead, I had to talk about these fictional stories and these medical texts and religious attitudes. And hopefully that can give us some insight into what the life of real lesbians might have been like in this period and into how people felt towards them and what sort of attitudes they would have been towards their relationships. But the most interesting thing I thought when I was doing this research was basically just the fact that they didn't demonize lesbianism and they didn't deny that it existed. Hmm. And Western texts have for so long just been kind of pretending that lesbians don't exist. Yeah, so you mentioned with the first story you told us that one of the women was Christian. Yes. And I know at this time religion in this area is complicated, mm-hmm. doing things. Um, many of the people talked about possibly Christian. Is Christianity just functioning differently in this part of the world than in the West where it's not having a fun time for anyone at all? Uh, I think so, and I don't... I realize that's probably something that someone needs to, like, do a very difficult PhD on. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I can't give, you know, a comprehensive answer Mm -hmm. on that. But she was not the only Christian woman that came up. There were several Mm -hmm. stories where one partner was Muslim and the other was Christian. Okay. And there was a whole array of stories that I didn't go into because I didn't really have the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand the reasons behind them, but there is a whole array of stories where there's a Muslim woman and a Christian woman, or sometimes a man, mm-hmm. anyway, a Muslim and a Christian mm-hmm. partnership where the Christian ends up fighting with Muslims in the Crusades against other Christians. Oh, oh okay. That's an interesting trope. Yeah. And th- several of those stories included same-sex attracted women. Okay. Which I didn't go into because I just didn't understand yeah, yeah. why that was happening. <laughs> you know, if you happen to be the one person in the world who's done a thesis on this and you're listening to this podcast, let us know. Yeah. What's up with that? I don't really know how Christianity in that area of the world was functioning its attitudes to sexuality because mm-hmm. I focused my research on Islam. Yeah. Although there were Christians involved, so I can't really answer that. Yeah. Fair enough. Cool. So one final quote I wanted to read to end, just illustrating again how positively lesbians were portrayed a lot of the time and how their relationships were seen as being very valid. It's a quote from the 7th and 8th century poet Al-Fazdaq about Hind and Al-Zaka, and he writes in a love poem, I was devoted to you in a time that you bestowed kindly, as Hind was devoted to Hassan Yamani's daughter. Hmm. That brings us to the end of the episode, where Queer as Fact. Once again, I'm Alice. I'm Hamish. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more of our episodes on Podbean. We're also on Facebook as Queer as Fact, on Tumblr as Queer as Fact, or on Twitter as Queer as Fact. We're also on iTunes now, so you can listen to us there. Please review and rate us, because it really helps us. Also, you can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you. We'll be back on the 1st of September when Eli will be talking to us about Michael Dillon, the first trans man to undergo a phalloplasty. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.